Hey everybody, welcome to Props and Hops, powered by Dimers.com. I'm Matt Landis, and with the Sweet 16 this weekend and the Elite 8 following up on Monday and Tuesday, in this episode we're shifting our sights back to March Madness, and I'm honored to do so with our guest... Dr. Ed Fang. Ed's a data scientist with a PhD from Stanford. He's also the founder of the Power Rank, and for good measure, he also hosts a couple podcasts, The Football Analytics Show and Covering the Spread. So Ed's all about uncovering sports predictions with a PhD edge, and that fits in perfectly with this discussion, where we get into Ed's background from his Stanford PhD to his betting career, and then we focus in on March Madness, everything from evergreen bracket tips to the rest of this year's tournament, plus one bet you'll probably want in that Sweet 16 portfolio. We also get into Ed's personality beyond sports and numbers, including beer, books, and running to wrap up the conversation. If that sounds good, I'd appreciate it if you could take a quick moment to follow or subscribe to Props and Hops wherever you get your podcasts, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, a quick rating and review would also be greatly appreciated to help more people discover this show. And if you're looking for a betting edge beyond the Sweet 16, go ahead and check out Dimers.com, where you can get daily picks covering the NBA and NHL betting boards, plus a new breakdown covering World Series championship probabilities with Dimers showing value on three teams, and I'll include a link to that World Series championship probabilities breakdown in this episode's show notes. All right, so without further ado, let's get to the conversation with Dr. Ed Fang. Ed Fang, welcome to Props and Hops. Thank you so much for taking time to join the show. I've been listening to the Football Analytics Show from the outset. Longtime subscriber to the Power Rank email newsletter. You've helped take my bracket success to the next level. I'm excited to help spread the word to others. It's really an honor to have you on. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah, Matt, thank you so much for uh, having me on. And if I uh, if I do drop dead in the middle of the show, it's because I got my vaccine, first vaccine shot today. So uh, we'll hope that doesn't happen. But Oh, congratulations. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. an interesting time. I've heard the second one might be causing a little bit more of the side effects, but all... All in, it still sounds like everybody who's who's trying to get it, things are moving in the right direction of a more open uh, country, more open economy, yeah. traveling and all that is hopefully well, not too far away from really making its way back. Well, and you hit it on the head, like the more open economy. And like, I try to, I try to emphasize that every time someone's a little squeamish about, eh, do I want the vaccine? It's like, guys, we're all living with this economy. It's all our economy, right? So try to do your part. Uh, and we'll get into a little bit more when we talk about beer later, which I, which I'm excited about. Um, but I expect to kind of feel kind of terrible tomorrow. Cause I'm pretty sure I had it last year, actually about exactly a year ago, uh, right, right now and, uh, gave it to my wife. So when she got her first vaccine, shot, she felt pretty bad after the first one. And then people who think they didn't have it felt a little bit worse after the second one. So, so we'll see. But again, like hopefully we, we just get this country back on track. We get the economy back and, uh, just trying to do my part. Yeah, well, fingers crossed across the board for the much more important big picture stuff, as well as keeping you upright and well throughout the course of this conversation. So <laughs> jumping right into it, I know we can get into basketball and beer, but I'd love to look at it from a high level to kick things off. And starting with a question, getting into your background, inspired by a recent guest of mine, a friend and former high school classmate of yours, Adam Stanko, what would you say is your earliest basketball memory? earliest basketball memory i mean when you say stanko i i remember like i think i almost won a pool the year arkansas won we were both in high school i think we had the same government class maybe so that was an early memory um i definitely remember like talking to people in orchestra when duke played unlv in that epic matchup was that 92 with that yeah oh man so i've seen the um, highlights it was a little before my time but yeah right around then sounds right yeah, I mean that UNLV team was like the Goliath, right? They were they were kind of the Gonzaga of this year. Um, but yeah, I would just say I don't know. Like I ever since I was a little kid, loved basketball. Uh, you know, growing up in Westchester, Pennsylvania, if I had some free time, I was out in the driveway shooting hoops. So you know, even you know, most of my business. I, I mean, the majority of my business right now is football. But I would say from a sports perspective, like I've been shooting hoops and and enjoying the game of basketball for a long, long time, uh, played a lot, uh, when I was growing up and then really got into college basketball when I was in grad school at Stanford. 
uh, was uh, the Casey Jacobson and the, and the Collins twins uh, when they were out there. And it was just a great time. Mike Montgomery was a fantastic coach and to be around that campus. That's, that's when I like co- kind of college basketball hit the next level for me. So yeah, it's just been all throughout my life. Like, I mean, as long as I can remember. Yeah. Um, well, I know you touched on football being the majority of your business. And of course the football analytics show a great listen. I think anybody who benefits from this podcast would get a lot out of working that into the sports podcasting diet. If it's not already in there and, and yeah, you talk about those Stanford teams. I, I went to USC, but before then, Stanford was long my dream school growing up. And I remember those teams in that campus. And it's it's a beautiful site. I guess if you couldn't get into college basketball then, then it, it probably wasn't in the cards. But that was a, a hell of a team they had for years on end. So I, on that note, I guess we can touch on it in a bit. But uh, Stanford not being in the tournament, but the Pac-12 as a whole, actually making some noise in this tournament has been a fun surprise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been a huge surprise, right? I mean, if you would have... I mean, I would have lost a lot of money. If someone would have bet me, like, there would be four Pac-12 teams in the Sweet 16 and one Big Ten team, I would have said no way. No no possible way. No way in, in hell that would ever happen. So, But that's what we've seen. And uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun for, for it to happen. Yeah, madness indeed. And uh, sticking with uh, the Stanford background you have before we get more into the weeds on the tournament, I know Stanford PhDs are not all that common in the betting space, in the sports media space. So I'd be curious if you could walk us through your career path a little bit and how you've kind of combined your passion for basketball, football, sports in general with your passion and and really your genius when it comes to working with data. Well, I appreciate that. Um I, I think part of my story is that I, I did it wrong. I mean, I think if you're passionate about something like sports and you're passionate about stuff like math and data, I think you just get right in and start working. I think that's the right approach. Uh, that wasn't my approach at all. I uh, went and you know didn't really think of any career in sports at all. Went to grad school at Stanford, always thought I'd become a professor and, and uh, kind of went on that path for a long time. Uh, I was at UCSB as a postdoc for a while, and then I went to Berkeley as uh, as a different postdoc position, and it just wasn't working out for me. It wasn't the right thing for me, and I think part of it was because you know I'm passionate about things like sports, and I wasn't so passionate about you know the experiments that I was supposed to care about in terms of doing my my research work. Um, you know, as a theorist, as a mathematician, you kind of need to work with the experimentalists, and at a fundamental level, I didn't really care so much. But I did care about sports. And so kind of when my time in academia was ending, I thought about how can I get a new idea about sports and making predictions? And that's how the power rank came about. So uh, essentially, based on my PhD research, I was able to develop an algorithm. And what that algorithm does is uh, take something like margin of victory and adjust for strength of schedule. So this is how things first got started in about 2008. Did some NFL rankings, moved into college football. But that first March Madness, I think 2009 or 2010, I did calculations for the tournament. And it was pretty clear that uh, in college basketball, you needed those strength of schedule adjustments. You think about how good the Big Ten was this year. You need to account for that when you are rating those top teams or even those middle teams. Uh, And it's just more difficult than, than playing in a conference like the MAC. So. So, yeah, anyways, uh, that's that's my path. That's kind of how I got into it. you know, back then I really wasn't much of a better at all. Uh, I was kind of into the analytics and, and content and things like that. And as things have evolved, um, you know, betting has become, you know, a bigger and bigger part every year. And uh, I, I've embraced it more and more and, and happy to talk about it uh, on the show. Yeah. And how would you break down, I guess, the betting certainly involves working with a lot of data and trying to outmaneuver the market when you can find edges but also just being interested in the analytical side of it without necessarily needing some action on a game to, you know, really capture your interest. How much would you say your work has been broken down from looking at things from a betting angle over the years and how much of it might just be more on the purely analytical side of it? Well, I mean, I think they're related. Um, you know, the kind of the way I think about it is like, you know, like kind of my passion is in the the data and the analytics and, and, and predicting things and understanding things. Um, but more the business aspect of it is betting. And, and I definitely enjoy that as well. Um, so they're certainly related, but I would say like, you know, analytics is only, analytics should only be a part of your full betting analysis. There's a lot of other things to consider. 
Um, I watch a lot of games, both football. I mean, anything on betting, I try to watch games. So I get some sense of, uh, I, I get some sense for the team, what their ceiling is, what their floor is. I think these are really important things because there's always air in your measurement of a team, right? Uh, there's, there's, it, you're, you're never going to make, uh, analysts are never going to give you a perfect uh, measurement of how good a team's offense or, or defense or they, how good they are as a team. Um, there's always going to be a little bit of air. And, and when you watch games and you can say, oh, well, maybe they're on the low side of what the numbers say, or maybe they're on the high side of what their numbers say. And using that and a whole bunch of other tricks, I think uh, using analytics, watching games and a bunch of other tricks, you can do really well betting on these games. Yeah, and I'd love to dive into these games that we've seen this past weekend with the first couple of rounds, also the Sweet 16 coming up. With March Madness this year, I know we're working with unprecedented circumstances. On one hand, it's so nice to simply have the tournament back. Of course, it was hard not to be heartbroken for a team like VCU who made it to the tournament and then couldn't give it a go. And in general, I mean, you mentioned the surprise of the Pac-12 sending four teams to the Sweet 16, the Big Ten sending only one in in general, do you have any big surprises or takeaways from the first couple rounds? I mean, I think partially I would say, like, you know, don't react too much from the small sample size of, of two rounds of games. I don't think you can say that the Pac-12 is a better conference than the Big Ten, despite what has happened. Um, so we always want to remember that. And, you know, sometimes it works out in your favor. Like, I, I kind of liked Michigan minus five against LSU. It was definitely a lean and then Monday, was it Monday or Tuesday? No, it was Monday. Uh, uh, Monday. Iowa just got stomped by Oregon. And I think that pushed the line down to Michigan only by four and a half in that game against LSU. So, so I ended up pulling the trigger. I didn't, I didn't really think that one game, you know, Iowa, a team that we know is, you know, kind of struggled on the defensive side of the ball. They struggled on the defensive side of the ball. Oregon shot the lights out. Uh, that's, that's not – that, that wasn't too unexpected for me. So uh, it didn't really change my opinion of where the Big Ten was at all. I think it gave you an extra half point of value. Uh, ended up betting it and uh, looked pretty awful for, you know, a big part of that game. Uh, but Michigan did pull it out, hit enough threes down the stretch, uh, figured out things on the defensive side of the ball, and, and it worked out. Yeah, I remember seeing USC open as a short favorite. I believe one and a half was a, a pretty common opener against Kansas. Came down to about Pickham, and then it probably was not entirely unrelated to what Oregon did earlier in the day. But that line right. got back up to you know USC in the range of minus two at close. So it is interesting to see how the market can react when teams from one conference can um, you know show well early, and then we know other teams yeah. from that same conference will be playing later before. You know, before USC had even done anything, they took, you know, maybe a point and a half of steam just because of what the rest of the Pac-12 had been doing. So yeah. it makes for a fascinating betting market in addition to just tracking our brackets. And when it comes to the brackets, I know that we're too late to make any of this actionable for this year. But your general approach, I think we'd be remiss not to touch on it because it has a lot of evergreen value. I know uh, if people want to subscribe to the Football Analytics Show, they can thank me for it next March when, when you're doing this before the tournament tips off. But what are your top line tips aside from the betting angle of March Madness, but simply how to fill out brackets and how that might be impacted by things like the size of your pool? Yeah. I mean, you hit it right on the head. It's all, it's all about the size of your pool. Um, and the two most basic things are, you know, don't get into a huge pool. You know, if there's only one winner in a thousand person pool, you know, even if you can five X your odds, of winning, like you're still, you're going to wait many years on average before you win that pool. So stay out of huge pools. Um, for the smallest pools, you can, uh, you know, I've, I've done some work in simulating these things to show that, you know, kind of a favorite strategy works best for, for small pools. So take some trusted rankings, whether they're my own or Ken Pomeroy or, or you know, 538, what they're doing over there. Take the higher ranked team in every game. And you give yourself a pretty good chance in small pools, you know, usually 10 or 20 or, or fewer. Um, but it gets interesting in those intermediate size pools because you can actually increase your odds of winning by taking a contrarian approach. And essentially, you're trying to fade what other people will do in your pool. So, for example, you know, if you're in Spokane and, and Spokane and, and, you know, you expect like 50, 80 percent of people in your pool to pick Gonzaga, you kind of want to go against that. You want to pick someone else that has like a decent probability of winning the tournament, 
Um, but uh, but is getting overlooked by other people in your pool. So uh, maybe that was, you know, this year that could have been in Illinois. Uh, obviously, that wouldn't have worked out so well. I, I, I really do like this Illinois team. Um, they uh, I think they are a great basketball team, and it shows you kind of how good Loyola Chicago is playing right now for them to, to win by 13 points in that game. Just a very impressive uh, game. It never really got that close. Illinois, I don't – did they get within – less than six like Loyola was just in command and you keep waiting and waiting for this run and it, it just never seemed to come around and that tells you how well balanced probably how well coached of a team they are despite what their seed might say yeah exactly I think it got close I was kind of trying to watch my kid play soccer and watch the game at the same time so I don't remember the specifics about what happened in in the second half but um but yeah I mean I think it says a lot about Loyola Chicago I think you know I watched a little bit of them against Georgia Tech and the numbers said they were a top five team defensively but they looked extremely uh efficient and with really crisp passing on the offensive side of the ball so um you know they kind of look good on both sides of the ball and uh, they put it together against Illinois and, and we can definitely see them keep moving uh in this bracket because when you beat a one seed your next game ends up being easier <laughs> that's just that's just kind of how it works so, um, yeah. yeah, so so getting back to the contrarian strategies, you know, the kind of the way that you figure this out is you look at the numbers at ESPN because they have statistics on millions of brackets that get submitted to the site. And this year it was really hard with the contrarian strategies because the the fraction of people that picked a certain team like Gonzaga, I think it was like 36-ish percent, was pretty close to what I think the true win probability for Gonzaga is. Um, some of my numbers said 32, 33. I think it actually should probably be a little bit higher. I think it should be very close to 36, which is, you know, the fraction of people that pick that um, on ESPN. So that makes it very hard in general to fill out, uh, to fill out a contrarian bracket. What I ended up advising two members of my site was to still pick Gonzaga as Champa. I mean, I, I do feel like they're going to win this tournament, but to pick a contrarian choice to go all the way on the other side of the bracket, uh, that team is Houston. Uh, so I think that's a team that's getting uh, overlooked. And I was very clear. I was like, look, I don't like their odds in a game against Illinois. I think they will be the underdog. But if you want to win a pool, like an intermediate size pool from 20 to 100, you need to take some risks. And I thought the right risk was, uh, was taking Houston to the championship game against Gonzaga. Yeah, I love that point about trying to be contrarian, but also being mindful of what the true odds are, because I think you mentioned that Duke was a team a couple years ago that also seemed like a good contrarian pick early in the week. And then as more brackets got entered, the you know the overall data that ESPN was showing suddenly course corrected. And, and it seemed like the, the Duke love was picking up as tip-off approached. And I'm trying to come up with the right term for it, but the way I think of it is generally trying to pick a champion that will have a better true probability of winning the tournament then your pool's consensus will imply. Right. So it can yeah, for sure. And I think you said that you said that exactly right. Like you want you know, maybe the best way to, to talk about it is is talk about 2019 where that was very clear. Uh, Virginia by my numbers had about a 22% chance to win the tournament, but no one was picking them because of the disaster of the previous year when they lost as a 1 seed to a 16 seed. Uh, only about 8.8% of brackets were picking them as champion. And so uh, you want to pick a, a really strong team like Virginia to win. And, you know, luckily it worked out that year in 2019. Yeah. And I benefited from that greatly. I was in a pool with some awesome. coworkers. I think there were 25 brackets and yeah, I was one of two to pick Virginia. So there's your 8% right there and yeah. just rolling with yeah. that edge. Yeah. And it definitely took some luck. I mean, they had to make oh a buzzer God. beater just to go to overtime uh, I believe that yeah. was the Sweet 16, maybe the Elite Eight. And then they had, was it their their final four game with the controversial foul at the end against Auburn? Even in the title game, Texas Tech took them to overtime. So it doesn't guarantee a smooth ride, but it's all about yeah. just trying to find a small edge with your pick versus the general consensus. And at that point, let the chips fall where they may. If you've got a 2 or 3% edge, then in the long run, you'll make money, even if any given tournament you're probably not going to win. And you might, in fact, become more likely to be one of the earlier teams knocked out. Um, I had Illinois in some brackets and, you know, that's gone by the wayside. But had they won, there were a couple pools where, again, two out of 15 with Illinois, that has you sitting pretty. So you just take your chances yeah. and let the edges do their thing over time. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so, yeah, no, I think I think you said that very well. 
I think you you got into a really good bracket wisdom series with the football analytics show. I'd love to touch on that a bit. One thing in particular that you did some good research on was three-point shooting, predictability versus skill. And I would love it if you could summarize for anybody who may not have caught that yet. Again, this still has evergreen value. I think it's well worth the listen. But on a top line level, how much of three-point shooting predictability versus skill came down to like noise versus isolating signal and and maybe what fans and and betters could do with that information? Right. So the basic idea behind predictability and three-point shooting is is that there's none. Um, So Ken Pomeroy did this work. And he essentially looked at, you know, how well three-point field goal percentage, on, both on offense and defense, like the first half of the season was correlated to the same quantity the second half of the season. And in college basketball, like, you know, most of your four factors per- tend to persist. They tend to be pretty sticky and, and predictive. Uh, but for three-point shooting, it, it's it's nil. Like, it's literally, there's literally no relationship between the first half of the season and the second half of the season. And what this says is that there's a, you know, randomness plays a huge role in three point shooting percentage on offense and defense. And I think it's easy to accept that. Uh, it's, it's easier to accept that fact on defense, um, you know, cause you kind of, you know, you have less control over, you know, what's going on with the offense. I find it harder to accept on offense because, you know, we know that's the skill. We know that we would rather take Steph Curry in a three point shooting contest uh, and not Russell Westbrook. Right. Like, so you know, how do you rectify these things? And so I did some work uh, with some NBA players, like a different way of, of showing uh, skill versus luck. And uh, this was some work I actually did last summer uh, when I was thinking about predicting interceptions in, in football and ended up getting sidetracked to do a little NBA study. Um, but but essentially, yeah, there's a lot of skill in, in three-point shooting, right? There, there's a lot of skill in shooting. Um, you know, free throw shooting is is entirely skill. Right. There's a huge difference between Damon Lillard on one end and Andre Drummond at the other. When you move the shot back and you put some defense, you know, randomness starts to play a bigger role. But clearly there's still skill. And when you do the analysis like that, that's what it shows. So so the big point of this is, is that, yes, there's skill in three point shooting on a player level. Um, but, you know, there's still a pretty random component. So when you're looking at a college basketball team and a three point offense, you know, I don't I don't look at just the pure number, right? I look at what individual players have done. And you know, you wanna you wanna cite like you wanna cite their career numbers. And and with the caveat that like, yeah, sure, guys can definitely get better. Guys can get better as a shooter. I I, I don't want to diminish that. But when you look at a guy like Jared Butler that you know is shooting 44% this year, been had a great year for Baylor, uh Davion Mitchell shooting higher than that, 48 percent or something crazy like that those are significant career highs for both of those guys um you know butler's got a pretty nice stroke but but mitchell can't really shoot like he's terrible from the foul line too so when you look at those kinds of things and you see like the struggles that he's had in the past uh from from the three-point line you know that there you expect regression coming so i kind of take the analysis on the player level i try to look at career averages over single game averages um, and, um, you know, teams like, you know, Michigan was a team that shot really well from three and, you know, livers was a great shooter and that's why that injury hurt. You know, he had shot a career high in his three point field goal percentage, but his career average was pretty high. I think it's in excess of 40. Don't quote me on that. But the other guys on that team, uh, you know, Mike Smith, Shondi Brown, uh, even Franz Wagner all had been shooting career highs from three. And so you expect a regression, and that's kind of exactly what you saw in the last part of the season. And um, so, yeah, it's it's. I think this is like you know, I don't know. It, it, it's a it's an edge that you really need to exploit because there's not a lot of college basketball edges, especially in February. It it gets really really hard. Um, one example on the other side of the ball, uh, three point shooting defense. I mean, this has this has absolutely propelled Oregon State on this run. So they were 10 and 10 in the Pac-12 regular season. Uh, and so they were kind of a very average team heading into the Pac-12 tournament. They won three games in the Pac-12 tournament. They've won their first two games in the NCAA tournament. And they are allowing 25% from three during those five games. That is completely unsustainable. So you're going to see regression to that uh, very soon. 
And uh, so that's an, that's an example on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, I love that look at both sides of the ball. I was I was going to follow up seeing how this might be actionable looking at specific teams, but you touched on Michigan, you touched on Oregon State, so both with offense and defense, we can see how this might play out in the Sweet 16. And I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into Michigan being your hometown team in the Ann Arbor area. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of the narrative was that they may have peaked a little bit early this season, and that said, they might be about as overlooked a one seed as I can recall. Right. Um, maybe that's a little bit of bias because they they survived against LSU. But yeah, I do definitely have some interest in seeing them make the Final Four for the sake of some brackets because everybody seemed big on Alabama. Um, I right. think Texas was a popular pick, and that's not a factor anymore. So um, if Michigan can just kind of hold serve as a one seed, that might actually put you know them on the contrarian side of you know, right. some brackets, whereas it would it would seem like they should have been the chalk. That clearly doesn't seem to have been the case. And I think a few things we're seeing from them, you mentioned when you did a deep dive on them in the Bracket Wisdom series, their strength denying the three-point attempt when they're playing defense, their ability to move the ball on offense, and then just simply having a player like Hunter Dickinson can work wonders. And then right. on the other side of the coin, their three-point shooting when they have the ball um, again, especially with the liver's injury that, you know, that took a hit um, rim protection without Dickinson on the floor could be an issue, but overall, when you balance out the strengths and weaknesses of Michigan and, and knowing how they're playing right now, what's your outlook for the Wolverines the rest of the way? Yeah. I mean, I think the liver's inju- injury is, is, is hard. I mean, it, it definitely hurts. He's their best shooter. And I really don't think they have a consistent shooter, behind him. I think Mike Smith is probably your next best shooter on that team. Uh, Franz Wagner kind of came in as a wing with a reputation for a shot. Like he's kind of become allergic to his own shot. You can tell that he just doesn't want to shoot the ball, uh, which is kind of another sign. You can tell that a guy is is struggling with a shot. He doesn't want to shoot it. Like he doesn't want to miss. Wagner is a terrific athlete, so he can make up for it in other ways. But so yeah, it definitely hurts them. Uh, I was talking to Adam Stanko about this. And, uh, you know, he used the word devastating for, for the liver's injury. Um, and, you know, you kind of can't, I can't really disagree with that. It, it really hurts. Uh, but even with the liver's injury, I think, I think it's worth a point, point and a half. Um, if I, if I wanted that there's, there's no quantitative estimate <laughs> behind that. I just want to point that out, but I, I think it's like a point, point and a half. They're still the best team in that region without him but it's just the margin of error is just so much smaller. You saw that with LSU, LSU, like, I mean, basically punched him in the mouth as soon as that game started and, and Michigan really had to fight back and claw back. And, and, um, and I think they did, they really did figure it out. Right. Like Juwan put uh, his longer defenders on their two main offensive scoring guards that helped wonders. They, they started to figure out uh, what those guys were trying to do and they hit some jump shots. So um they're great. They're in the Sweet 16. What next? Well, you get Florida State, which is exactly, uh, which is very simple. Not exactly. A f- team that's very similar to LSU, and they, they bring these wings that want to drive the ball to the basket, except, oh, wait, this Florida State team is better on the defensive side of the ball. So it just gets, it, it gets harder. Uh, Michigan should win. I think they're a three-point favorite, two-and-a-half-point favorite. You know, at that number, I would slightly lean towards Florida State. I think my number is, is right around two-and-a-half, three. But if you factor in the liver's injury, that's that's kind of where my lean is. But still, with that said, I mean, I think they're they're a better team and they should win that game. And then, um, you know, you're probably playing Alabama. And, you know, when I saw the bracket, I was like, I love this. I mean, I think Alabama is the weakest two seed. And they've had a great season. I actually love Nate Oates as a coach. Uh, I was kind of heavily pushing for him, either him or Juwan, to, to get the Michigan job because he's got – Michigan roots uh, was a high school coach in Romulus, which is right down the street from here. But, you know, this Alabama team has had a great season, but, but part of it is their three point defense. Uh, They've had an incredibly low three point field goal percentage allowed on defense. Uh, That's something that's going to regress. You know, this is, this is, you know, Houston's had the same thing. They've had a really good three point defense, but I kind of trust Houston's defense more than I trust Alabama's defense. Uh, just from watching them play, you know, you can like Houston's uh, rotations are just a little bit more crisp and they're a little bit more motivated on that, on that side of the ball, which is what you expect from a Kelvin Sampson team. So, I mean, Alabama's a great team. They've had a great year. I think they're flying a little bit above their true skill level. And, um, 
yeah, I mean, I, I mean, Michigan should come out of that region, you know, I mean, that that's what should happen. Obviously basketball is going to be a lot of randomness, so they might not, but I still think they're the best team in that region, even without levers. Cool. Yeah. I like the point that you made about thinking, okay, maybe it's a point or a point and a half and then caveating that you don't know for sure. It's really tough to quantify, but the name of the game, especially for a lot of people who, you know, I think a lot of listeners to the show and a lot of people in general right now, given the state of sports betting legalization would be knowing a lot about sports or being a fan, but not necessarily knowing a lot about betting. And, and that's a perfectly fine spot to be in. And to somebody in that category, I would just say, you don't need to know exactly what an injury like that means. You just have to right. try to account for it better than slightly more than half the marketplace. And that's the edge you need. The thought I keep going back to is that adage about, I don't have to outrun you. I just have to outrun, or excuse me, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. Um, you don't have to say, <laughs> okay, I know exactly what this is worth. Yeah. Just directionally, you know, try to work in the direction of accuracy and being objective with it. And if you're right a little more than half the time, that's all it takes. So some solace to what could otherwise be a pretty daunting thing to try to pinpoint. Nobody knows. So if yep. it's, if you're saying a point, point and a half, other people might say three, other people might under account for it. Um, if you can find that sweet spot, then that's going to net out positively in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. One more team I wanted to touch on briefly here. I know I didn't run this one by you ahead of time. You probably don't watch them as closely. I didn't want to jinx anything, but now that USC has made the Sweet 16, have you seen anything from them that gives you any kind of thought as to how far they might go? I mean, Oregon, Oregon's a good team. I know Dana Altman with a lot of transfers tends to peak at the right time, but um, do you see you know any kind of path forward for USC? Gonzaga is a juggernaut if they even make it that far. But how do you think the Trojans' fate is looking over the next, uh, I guess, couple rounds if they do indeed have a couple more games in them? Yeah, uh, so I haven't seen too much of USC play, so I just want to be upfront about that. Um, but you know, I was when I was looking at the numbers today, like they look pretty balanced on on both sides of the ball. Thirteenth. Uh, on offense when I look at points per possession adjusted for opponent and then fourth on defense uh, again by the same metric. So that that's better balanced than you see with Oregon. That's much better on offense than, than they are on defense. And if you're a USC fan, you got to be pretty pumped that they're what two and a half, three point favorite at this point. Um, yeah. I, I, that seems a little bit much to me, but that's, that's kind of where my numbers have it too. So, so you like the chances to, to get by there. I did see them play a little bit against Kansas, and it was interesting to me that, like, Isaiah Mobley kind of seems like he's got more of an NBA frame than his brother Evan, even though Evan's the one. Like, Evan looks a little thin to me. And, and uh, yeah, so that, that was interesting. And Isaiah obviously had a great game against Kansas too. So, you know, if you, you kind of just watched that game, uh, you might have mistook him for the, the future lottery pick next year. Um but yeah, I don't know. I mean, what, what, what? I mean, does Evan Evan Mobley seem like uh, you know consensus top five pick to you uh, from watching more games? Yeah, I, I mean, just what's so impressive from watching him. By the way, I just checked. Um, I'm looking at Bookmaker as we record this on uh, Wednesday evening, and USC is laying two at reduced vig. So that, that's maybe more a line of two and a half or three sounded a little heavy, but but still a right. clear favorite. Um, they're they're pushing minus one thirty on the money line, so they theoretically should win as you noted with Michigan anything can happen so uh yeah when it comes to Evan Mobley he just makes things look so effortless and I think for a guy if he has a smaller frame a at his age that can change over time I'm sure if he gets in an NBA weight room on on a you know a good program then um that might change but he seems so efficient whenever he's using energy he's been bodying up against guys that might have 60 70 pounds on him and he, whether it's just his his savvy intelligence, knowing how to just physically do things, you know, work to his advantages. Um, he he really seems to make everything so smooth. This is crossing over sports a little bit, but being a baseball fan and specifically an Angels fan growing up, Garrett Anderson is a player who Evan Mobley reminds me of so much. So if there are any baseball fans out there from a couple of decades ago, uh, he was a great player. He was um, consistently, you know, in the all-star conversation. He actually went, won the home run derby, and I believe the all-star game MVP uh, in 03, but he would always take heat for never seeming to care. He he didn't dive. He wasn't the guy to run through a wall or to give the, you know, the speech that fired everybody up, but he was just so good and always had that poise about him. Um, <laughs> I feel like Evan Mobley might have something there where he just seems so efficient and 
um, zoned in on playing to his strengths that it's it's going to be fun to see what he does at the next level. But I definitely hope that he has more than one game left in him at this level because without him, yeah. I, I don't want to think about yeah, USC would have been sent packing a while ago. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, and it's what, like year six for Andy Enfield? Yeah, I think this is actually eight. Is it eight? Oh, uh, I'll double check right now if you have any yeah, thoughts because on it. But I, believe it's eight. Was, I, I don't know why I'm calling that Gulf Coast team like Lob City instead of Dunk City. I, I've tried to convince <laughs> the internet that it's Lob City, but it's clearly Dunk City. But I think that was 2013, so I guess that's eight years. So, yeah. um but yeah, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think I think USC, you know, is is the favorite, and and Oregon doesn't have a ton of size too. So uh, if they can really exploit the match, uh, the bigs down down in the post, uh, I, I can see that in in favor of of USC. Yeah, well, I will keep my fingers crossed. But again, two point favorite, uh, no surprises either way. And it, it was nice to get to stomp Kansas like that. That that yeah. was enough joy, and that's that's Those the best it's been yeah, that's the best it's been for USC basketball since they knocked out Kevin Durant's Texas team to go to the Sweet right. 16 last time they were this far. So I'll take it. And I wanted to check in to see, I think I can see where you might be going with this, but if you were to predict a Final Four and champion based on what we've seen over the past couple of rounds, I know Gonzaga is still a powerhouse, but uh, what would you expect when we get to the Final Four in that championship game who's still standing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Gonzaga is going to win this tournament. I think they're the best team. I think you can see that every time they step on the court. Oklahoma gave them their best shot, and they didn't even come within double digits of beating them. I mean, they were throwing in they were throwing in all kinds of shots. You know, it was it was kind of crazy. So I, I have a ton of respect for Gonzaga. I think, I mean, they're they're one of the best college basketball teams I've seen in in recent memory. So I expect them to cut down the nets at, at the end of the day. Um, you know, as mentioned before in the East, I, I still think Michigan is the best team in the East with not a lot of room for air. Um, Baylor is a team that I was a little down on coming into the tournament because it looked like they had forgotten how to play defense since they came back from COVID. Um, they had a defensive rank. This is a really good defensive unit kind of from the beginning of last season through when they had to pause for, for COVID. And then they dropped from like eighth to you know, 36 or 37th in my defensive efficiency. So they look better against Wisconsin. So, you know, I mean, if, you know, they're going to have the best odds to come out of the South and then in that other region. Yeah. I mean, I like Houston's chances. Um, I, I'm kind of keeping an eye on what the, what's going on with injury to Dijon Giroux. Uh, he might not be the best player on uh, that team. I think Quentin Grimes, probably the best player but Giroux seems like the alpha dog on on that team and I think to not have him would would really hurt and I mean he's got a hit pointer right I mean I feel like you you give him a painkiller and, and throw him out there it's it's the sweet 16 and that's a really really good Houston team so uh and obviously I'll be rooting for him because <laughs> a lot of my customers have them in the final game so um but yeah that's what I expect to see I mean we've seen a crazy tournament with upsets so far Chalk kind of tends to take over in the later rounds. Uh, I definitely expect to see that in the in the West with Gonzaga, but we'll see what happens in Michigan and, and Baylor's regions and, and, and Houston as well, since they're 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 now the chalk there. Yeah, and well, with Houston, aside from the injury, one thing that might be benefiting them is the I mean the the time between games uh, yeah. could benefit you know from a health standpoint, and also playing a team like Syracuse instead of playing on one day of rest, do you get you know the you know the better side of a week to prepare for that zone, which San Diego state apparently didn't know that Jim Bayham has been running for <laughs> as long as he's been there. But I think with Houston having that extra time to get healthy and prep for that unique matchup, that could also be a case where we really see the cream rise uh, more than if it was just a, you know, a second game in three days where they hadn't had the time to, you know, get, you know, some training sessions in uh, for, you know, any injuries and also just prepping for that zone. So I like Houston's chances there. And with Baylor, I was wondering if you think there might be any credence to a thought I've had. I know when they came back from uh, their COVID outbreak, the defense really suffered. That's been well documented, and it was hard to ignore uh, with you know trying to fill them out to advance very far in this tournament. There, there came some trepidation in the later stages, but having some time to practice now, you know, having this time between games, and and it seemed like they really weren't getting the benefit of practice time 
from the time they got their outbreak until the time they went down to Oklahoma State in the Big 12 tournament. So do you think there might be anything to Baylor getting some extra time to work on its defense? Maybe along the lines of, I think of an NFL team, say the 49ers go back east, they play the Jets and Giants back-to-back weeks. They're not coming back out west in between games, and they almost get an in-season minicamp. Um, I, I kind of feel like Baylor might be getting a similar type of benefit, mm-hmm. or am I reading too much into the value of practice time when we're talking about players of this caliber? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think they're going to get more practice. I mean, I think part of the problem was they scheduled a bunch of games to make up during that last week of the season, and then you go straight into the Big 12 tournament, and that's a tough lead. Um, I mean, the thing I would say about Baylor's defense is it looked more like an effort problem. So not getting back on defense, uh, not, you know, Mark Mark Vidal is a, is a great defensive player, and he was just letting guys go right around him. And so, it, I mean, this is pure speculation on my part, but, but I don't know who had COVID on that team but maybe it was affecting some of their key guys in ways that didn't allow them to have the cardiovascular effort to play defense like they normally would. And maybe that's something that comes back as the weeks go by. Uh, it certainly looked that way against Wisconsin to me, or it just could be that Wisconsin's like a wreck of a team this year. Uh, that, that could also be the truth. And, and we didn't, you know, we didn't see Baylor play a quality opponent in that game. Um, you know, we'll find out. I mean, Villanova is going to be a tough opponent. They're always a tough opponent. Uh, they don't have their leader uh, in Gillespie. But there's still a lot of talent on that team. So I feel like maybe a very wide range of outcomes in that game based on what we've seen from those two teams. Got it. Yeah. Um, Baylor right now playing seven with some extra VIG. So it could be headed to seven and a half pretty soon. Uh, north of minus 300 on the money line. But to your point, when there's that kind of variance, I guess betting betting a point spread might not make as much sense. I mean, maybe maybe taking a high plus number on Villanova, figuring if they cover, they might be more likely than not just to win it outright. And if they don't cover, then um, you know at least you're not laying the extra vig on a point spread bet that you um, could otherwise yeah. save taking them on the money line. So, all right, well, that's a lot of good food for thought. And I wanted to touch on one more tournament-specific question before we move on to some bigger picture betting topics. Um, but when it comes to the concept, we've kind of already touched on it. And I, I think of the college football bowl season, when we look at conference trajectory, uh, you know, the results from teams in a conference's early games being possibly informative for other teams from that same conference in later games. And you mentioned the PAC 12, I mean, four teams in the sweet 16, they're eight and one straight up and against the spread so far in the tournament, UCLA three wins in five days, Second round, uh, not only winning and covering, but USC could not have been much more dominant against Kansas. Oregon knocking out Iowa was a pretty big upset in the second round. Um, yep. And then that could transition to the Big Ten kind of being in free fall with, again, nine teams going to the tournament, including two number one seeds and two number two seeds. Yep. Only one Sweet 16 representative to show for that. Ohio State and Purdue, two of the biggest upset losses round one. Second round, Illinois, the first one seed to get eliminated. Iowa, again, an upset loss to Oregon. Michigan, the only team left standing. So do you put any credence to this concept of the conference trajectory? And even if you do, based on your numbers and then what you see in the betting markets, do you see any value when looking at this concept? Or is it safe to assume that it's probably baked into the numbers that we're seeing on the betting boards? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's small sample size, right? I mean, you're looking at, you know, you're going to have a little bit of recency bias given. And, and look, the Pac-12 teams have played played really well. Um, but, yeah, I would, tend to, I would tend to ignore it. You know, like I said before, like, you know, getting that Michigan at four and a half instead of five against LSU because Iowa lost. Maybe not because, but that, you know, I mean, that's probably the reason why, the, why that market kind of moved right after that game. Um, I think there's definitely little edges to be had. Uh, well, probably not. Cause I probably just said I would lean against Michigan in this next game. <laughs> so yeah. So maybe the markets have accounted for it because, cause that's what they do. They're efficient. Yeah. Well, it can be tricky because maybe there is a small, maybe it's a half point or, you know, it could say a quarter point. If you look at the way the, the big gets shaded, maybe yeah. there is a bit of an edge there, but that's one piece of a much bigger handicap. So yeah, it, maybe it's something to give a small amount of attention to, but be very wary of sample size to your point and realize there's a lot more to, I mean, if USC is playing Kansas at 6.40 PM Pacific, what happens between Oregon and Iowa earlier that day really probably doesn't have that much bearing on what we're about to see between two different teams. So it's, yeah. it's been fun to see um, as a Pac-12 grad, but 
I, I think it makes sense to be very aware of small sample size, especially as so many people at a certain point, um, you know, when everybody gets so enamored with what the Pac-12 was doing or so hard on the Big Ten for the way they've performed, then maybe it can open up value going the other way if you just wait yeah. and let the market do its thing. So, yeah, to that end, just to tie a bow on the tournament, um, how would you describe your betting approach for the rest of March Madness, be it game by game? Do you look at teams in between rounds? I know the odds are updated for teams to win regions or there are future bets that often pay out better as mechanical parlays. Do you even look at that or um, how would you describe your plan of attack for the rest of the tournament? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely looking uh, first kind of bet the side. Uh, my numbers have been pretty solid this year, so I feel pretty good about that. Um, you know, one, one game I'm, I, I mean, I like Loyola Chicago, uh, minus six and a half against Oregon state for the reason I mentioned earlier, Oregon state has had just outstanding three point defense. And we know that that's not predictive. That's not predictive going forward. And I haven't seen too much of Loyola Chicago play, but, but they're definitely a good program. And, uh, you have to be playing pretty well if you're going to be Illinois by 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 13 so so that's that's one game so I'm, I'm looking to kind of bet that i mean i think you know when the value eventually does get sucked up and, and things are perfectly efficient heading into the final four then maybe um maybe look into some player props uh as they come out uh before the games um yeah i think that would be my approach got it yeah sounds good when you look at player props um is that also largely driven by the data you're doing just all season long with the power rank, or is there anything specifically within the tournament that, you know, we might see a matchup where again, nobody was probably prepping for player props involving Oral Roberts in the sweet 16. Um, Is there anything that really uh, stands out from earlier rounds that might get you to look one way when we think about player props down the home stretch of the tournament? Yeah. I mean, I think you want to kind of look at averages and then see how they might be affected in, in any particular situation. Um, that would kind of be my approach. Uh, and, and I think by the time we get to the final four, like, you know, I've been watching these teams for three, four games now, full games. So you can get a sense for, for what's going on and how they play and, and what type of shots they like to take. And then, you know, I mean, you can definitely use some tricks about, you know, the three point shooting. Right. Um, so another factor in, three-point shooting is that uh, offenses and defenses kind of control the types of shots that they take or get taken against them. So when you look at three-point field goal rate or the fraction of field goal attempts that are taken from three, that's a statistic that tends to be pretty sticky uh, in college basketball. So if you have a team that really defends the three-point line well, like a Michigan, uh, you know, maybe you go under uh, an opposing player that tends to shoot the three a lot because, you know, Michigan's probably not going to let them take as many shots. So yeah, that's something, that's something that I would, I, I I'm planning on thinking about. I love that. I'm noting this right now, just to make sure that I, I check that out for um, hopefully multiple Michigan matchups to come. So, all right, well um, that's, thank you so much. That's so much awesome analysis for this tournament. And I would like to also touch on maybe some lessons learned throughout your betting career. Cause you've been at this for a while working at a very high level across a bunch of different sports. What would you say are some of your favorite moments as a better? Yeah. I mean, I was, I was pretty pleased with the the Super Bowl this year. Uh, I just had a really good day kind of across the board. Uh, I'm not particularly good at Super Bowl, or at least I don't think of myself as like any kind of expert at that. Uh, but, but ended up doing pretty well. You know, I talked about Tom Brady throwing zero picks on covering the spread, uh, the FanDuel podcast that I'm the co-host of. Uh, that worked out. There was a couple other ones I got from people on that show. So Super Bowl was like kind of a just a great way to cap off uh, football season this year. Oh, and plus yeah, it's always side too. Yeah, yeah, well played there. And it's always just such a spectacle to watch the game and, and try to go out on a high note. But when everything kind of aligns, then it doesn't get much better than having one of the better football betting days of the year on the biggest football day of the yeah. year. So. Yeah, that was a fun one. I know often betters who do on the Super Bowl are probably those who bet against human achievement or, you know, kind of go over the boring game. But that's, again, if the market's opening up value there, then might as well take advantage. So I'd also like to look at maybe a time where you were most wrong as a better and any lessons learned from that. Because if somebody has been doing this long enough, then, you know, those rough patches will come up inevitably. So, yeah, any big lessons learned along the way in your betting career? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've ever won the first year I've bet a sport. So, uh, so those are definitely, uh, yeah. I mean, there's just the learning curve, right? I'm like, you got you got to learn about the players and the teams and and all that stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't. So, I would say the first year you get into something, don't don't really expect to win. Expect to learn. Um, I'm probably thinking about doing some uh, some NBA player props uh, for the rest of this NBA season and. Don't really expect to win, expect to learn. Um, and then the other thing, so a couple of years ago when uh, I was uh, I was working with my friend Mike Craig and, and we were we were selling some college football plays on on the power rank. And overall, we did really well. I don't know, 53 and a half percent or whatever over, over three years. But there was one stretch uh, where we were literally two and 14. It was pretty bad. Uh, it was a really bad stretch. And it was really hard. Uh, I think I was I think I was running a race the next morning one time and just just watching all these these uh, games go against you. But, you know, I think you just uh, those are that's inevitably going to happen. You're going to have some down times if you, if you do this long enough and, uh, you know, trust your process, trust your long term results and uh, keep going. Yeah, well, you you might have just hit on it um, in terms of the way to approach any speed bumps that arise along the way, especially early on, you should expect them to happen. Um, beyond that, are there any simple things that come to mind if you were to think of what most betters can do to improve their long-term return on investment? Yeah. I mean, I think you definitely have to shop multiple books, but also know which ones the sharp books are. So, uh, you know, FanDuel has a reputation for being a sharper book. Uh, I've had the chance to talk to the the bookmaker there, John Sheeran, uh, he's, he's come on our podcast a number of times. And, and the only thing, you know, the only thing better than his, his brains and his sharpness is his, his passion for his business. Um, so he, he knows what he's doing. And so for example, like, you know, they'll often take a stand on an NFL side against the market. So they'll be, they'll shade a half point in one way or the other. And they have a meeting Wednesday morning to decide which games those are going to be. Uh, and they feel really confident about their their NFL numbers. So you know, if if FanDuel shaded in a direction, then then you know it's probably uh, that's that's probably the side that you want to bet. And another example, you know, I was kind of contemplating, uh, you know, laying a pretty big number for Gonzaga to to win that first round. Uh, I think it was plus ten thousand for Gonzaga and Norfolk State. And I was like, ah, eh, I know there's value. I ran the numbers, yada yada yada. Uh, do I want to bet this? You know, you're laying so much, right? And uh, I went and I looked on FanDuel and they weren't even offering it. So that was kind of my sign that there was value there. And I took it and, and it worked out. I love that example because so often when people start betting, there's a lot of emphasis on just learning how to protect your bankroll. And it's easy to get enamored with betting parlays or, or just big plus numbers to, you know, the idea of risking a lot to when risking a little to win a lot is what's enticing right. to a lot of betters. But oftentimes there is a lot more value if you can have the stomach to risk a lot to win a little. So that Gonzaga example stands out. Um, I know every year for a long time, it, it's starting to tighten up, but Super Bowls, no overtime, no safety. If you can get right. 10 to one or better, that's usually a good bet. Of course, we had that run of three straight Super Bowls from 46 to 48 where there was a safety. So hmm. I, that's oh, that's not a guarantee. Just because you're laying 10 to 1 on something not happening doesn't mean it can't. 10% is yeah. still a very real possibility, a, a non-zero yeah. number. But if there's value on a number, it's you know, some people say I don't lay more than minus 200 in baseball sides, uh, or I don't want to lay more than this many points in the NFL. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> if the number's good, you, you know, you you should be just as eager to lay 14 if the Chiefs should be favored by 17 over a garbage team as you should right. be to take a big number when there's value. But the concept of how much you risk up front can be a little bit intimidating or maybe skew the judgment of some betters, especially early on at this. So I love that point about with Gonzaga, especially if you see that line's not even available everywhere. Oftentimes, the markets with less liquidity uh, can be the ones where if you have your edge, like that, that's probably a sign that you know, if somebody's going to take your six-figure bet on an NFL Sunday right before kickoff, maybe you should think twice about how much of an edge you have exactly, versus something yeah. like Gonzaga. You're laying a lot, but you can't even get it down everywhere. So that in and of yeah. itself is saying something. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and it's fun in getting into the Sweet 16 where you kind of have like football style betting with these games where these lines are up all week and uh, you can bet early, which is another thing that I'm a huge fan of. You know, don't bet an NFL game Sunday morning at FanDuel. It's probably there's probably not much value there. So look for value earlier in the week. Yeah. Agreed. Um, well, thank you for sharing some of these lessons throughout your own betting career. I'd like to move into kind of a rapid fire round to wrap things up. And first things first, uh, listeners will know this beer is the other <laughs> pillar of the Props and Hops podcast. And whether it's really beer or any other libations, what do you like to drink when you just want to unwind and, and relax for a bit? So right now I've actually been making my own old fashions. So, uh, with a lot of sports watching during the pandemic, I go over to my buddy's house and we sit on his deck and uh, usually bring some old fashions that I make. So that's kind of my favorite drink right now. I kind of do it the old fashioned way. I mean, there's, there's, it's a little bit of simple syrup, uh, some bitters, um, and then a lemon peel and then obviously whiskey bourbon or whatever you're putting in there. So that's my favorite right now, but I am a big beer fan and uh, I got my vaccine shot in Ohio because they allow people over 40 to get them down there and the advantage of that was getting some beer because we don't get uh three floyds in michigan and we don't get uh toppling goliath in michigan but they are in ohio so i uh, picked up some zombie dust which is kind of an old classic uh out of three floyds uh just a fantastic uh well-balanced beer and then uh pseudo sue is is another favorite from toppling goliath they're out of iowa and uh, and then also Holmes Brewery in, in Ann Arbor, Michigan is is another favorite of mine. Uh, my friend opened it. I've, I've actually had every I, he had people over to taste it. So I've had every iteration of their, their flagship beer, which is definitely a cool experience. Um, but they do a fantastic job there. Man, I, I feel like often I'm spoiled being in Southern California. We've got a great beer scene. But when you mention three Floyds, Toppling Goliath, and Holmes. It's hard not to envy your setup right now. That sounds spectacular. So well done parlaying the first vaccination shot into a, a good beer hall to take back home as well. Yeah, we we have, a, we have a pretty good here in the Midwest. Obviously, you guys have a great in California too. But, uh, you know, in terms of, um, yeah, we have a great here in the Midwest. Yeah, one of my favorite local bars here, um, their beer buyers has some fantastic relationships and there's a big festival every year in Southern California called the Firestone Walker Invitational, obviously Firestone Walker, a really big brewery, but they also bring a lot of good breweries from really all over the world. Uh, Every year, I I think this year, again, they're having to scrap it, but it looks like it'll be back in full force in 2022. And when breweries have come out year after year, some of the better bars around LA, you know, if, if somebody's coming out to California from the East coast or another country, they might just bring some extra kegs and kind of pass them off to people they're close with. So I yeah. had three Floyds for the first time. Uh, I remember nice. getting zombie dust at a local bar and it was just unreal after hearing so much about it, like yeah. having it on draft in Los Angeles was surreal, but I can also imagine having, I don't know if you get a, a four pack or more just to keep with, you know, in yeah. the home fridge. It, it also can't get much better than that. So when I first learned of zombie dust, um, like you literally had to fight to buy a single bottle from a store in Ohio. Like that, like that was how valued it was. And uh, luckily it's not, you know, things have changed over the years. Um, and, you know, you can just, I, I just went in and grabbed a couple six packs today, but you know, it's, it's still in, you know, it, it was kind of like, you know, this uh, it, it was, it was unique in the sense that it was like a, a it was citra only hop, you know, IPA, right? That was kind of unique when it first came out. That's not by any means unique anymore, but they still do a great job with it. And, you know, drinking it out of a keg in LA, that's got to be awesome. But the best experience, I mean, this might be the single best beer experience was being at uh, Dark Lord Day, which is their their, mm. their Imperial Stout uh, release. And I'm not a huge fan of Dark Lord. It's fine. But I'm, I'm just not much of a stout person. But they but they had Dark Lord Day, and it was like this miserable, rainy April day in, uh, I don't know, the city that they're in. I can't remember. It's, it's right next to Hammond, Indiana. It's in Indiana. Mm. And uh, it was kind of raining a little bit. And, like, the zombie dust was – they must have made it the day before. And it was just like perfect, like having zombie dust at Dark Lord Day. So, um, yeah, if you ever make it out here, I would definitely recommend checking that out. Recommend coming to Ann Arbor for some homes. 
and a lot of good stuff here. Yeah, three Floyds out of Munster, Indiana. Also a, a big yeah. respect for for everybody in Chicago as well. Yeah, that anybody uh, in the Midwest probably already knows about it. Who would be interested? Um, but if you have a chance to get to the Midwest from other parts of the country anytime soon, yeah, between three Floyds, toppling Goliath, Holmes, you really can't go wrong with any of those three. So I also wanted to touch on kind of my repurposed version of a really good question you ask a lot of guests on your podcast, which would be asking people their favorite book and putting a bit of a spin on it. Uh, maybe this would be your favorite book, but I'm curious looking at this from a betting lens, what book have you read that you think has helped you the most as a better? Yeah, this was actually really hard um, because I don't think betters like to write books and give out all their secrets, right? Um, so I'm actually going to go with The Ravenous Brain. Um, and I don't even remember the author's name. But there's some really great stuff about brain science in there and about how we're terrible at understanding randomness and uh, small sample size. And, and I mean, essentially, we're, we're, our brains are geared to see patterns in, in everything, which, which is fine because that's how we learn math and that's how we... Uh, develop technology that puts a computer in our pocket, but that gets us into big problems when we uh, try to look at sports, which are random because we want to see patterns in that randomness. We want to make up a story like Oregon state's the best three point shooting defense team to ever play college basketball. So uh, the Ravenous brain is great for that. Um, if you want to check it out, one of my bracket wisdom series was uh, titled uh, good old clickbaity title. Do you make this mistake in filling out your bracket? Uh, I talk about the key findings in there that have really helped me uh, to help me just sit back and be like, all right, look, this is probably small sample size. Um, just trying to understand what goes on in our brain. And even though we know that we can't, uh, there's an, there's a personal example in there about how I really got fooled by small sample size. So we can't help it, but uh, we, we got our best to try to think about how our brains work and avoid seeing too much into randomness. Yeah, I love that answer because to your point, it's not like Billy Walters is just going to write a book and spill all his secrets or right. anybody's at the top of the, they want to keep a low profile and maintain their edges and I get it, more power to them. But um, finding things that can transfer, like a lot of the concepts you just touched on with the Ravenous Brain, I believe, I just tried to do some real-time research. I think it's Daniel Bohr. So yeah. if anybody's curious, uh, definitely going on my reading list. And that reminds me a lot of reading a book called Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. Uh, somebody who mm, I yeah. hope to have on this show for an interview one day. Awesome. She is a former poker player. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it's a great deep dive. It's, you know, it's not a poker book though. It's, it's just really right. about how to come to terms with the concept that overall in the long run, the process is the result and there's so much randomness to everything. And when we only see one outcome, it might make it difficult to remember all the possibilities. I mean, sticking with Oregon state, they, they could have lost, you know, at any point in the Pac-12 tournament and not even gotten to the dance. And then to have won these last right. couple of games, it's like, oh, it's so obvious now. Of course, they're playing great three-point defense. Like, why couldn't we get behind this team? But understanding that, um, you know, there's often a lot more that goes into it than the one factor that we're probably hearing about on talk radio or, or seeing on SportsCenter. So um, a, a lot of that, you know, I think of it as a transferable concept. It's not written to help you look at a basketball handicap, but it can certainly be informative there or, or for any form of betting really. And even today I was listening to a conversation between um, Adam Grant and then Daniel Kahneman who wrote mm -hmm. a book called thinking fast and slow. And he's, he might be the best um, sharpest mind in the world when it comes to decision-making processes and the science behind it. And he even said he's guilty of these own biases himself. So when you mention, even though this is, you know, a fantastic read and you really embrace the concepts, you still can get tripped up by small sample size. We all can, you know, whether it's confirmation bias, anything like that, motivated reasoning is driving us all. And just like you don't have to know exactly how much the liver's injury is for Michigan to still find some sort of an edge by accounting for it the best you can. I think with all these biases, the point is not to eradicate them entirely. That's impossible. But if we can get one or 2% better then in the long run, you know, project that over the course of years, that's going to make all the difference, whether it's betting or, or plenty of other walks of life. So love that answer. And the Ravens brain uh, definitely going on the reading list. So thank you for sharing that. Um, and Matt, while you were talking, it reminded me of another book that I should mention. Uh, the Logic of Sports Betting by, by Ed Miller mm -hmm. and Matthew Davidow is also an excellent read. Uh, very modern read. 
really important for understanding how books work and uh, understanding why parlays aren't necessarily a bad bet. Uh, a lot of good stuff in there as well. So I, I should throw that in there too. Awesome. Well, maybe between, I don't know, the NFL draft isn't too far behind March Madness, but but after that, there will be some downtime for a lot of sports fans and sports bettors. So the logic of sports betting uh, already near the very top of my reading list. We've got to get to that one uh, as well as the Ravens brain. So um, yeah, thank you for those two recommendations. And I wanted to touch on one more thing here. Uh, Your Twitter bio also mentions that you're a runner and I've picked up on doing some half marathons myself over the past few years, I guess, excluding 2020, but it's looking like summer coming back in the next few months. Um, What? Yes. Yes. Fingers crossed. So what are your favorite distances to run? Do you have any favorite organized runs or or just places that you love to get out and go for a run? Yeah. I mean, I definitely like half marathons. Um, I, uh, one of my favorites is Dexter Ann Arbor. And I just found out it's usually in June, uh, very early June, the week after uh, Memorial Day, but they moved it to August, which is kind of crushing. So I'm pretty bummed about that. But yeah, I like the half marathon distance. I think the marathon distance takes a a lot out of your body. Uh, Not that, I mean, I'll I'll probably run another one. I've run some in the past. I'll probably, I'm not saying I'm not going to run another one in the future. Um, But I really do enjoy the half. uh, And um, yeah, it just, you know, keeps me sane, keeps me healthy. And uh, I really do enjoy it. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Ed, I want to thank you so much and go ahead and also make sure to plug uh, follow on Twitter at the power rank. Also two podcasts, the football analytics show, um, mm-hmm. as well as covering the spread and then powerrank.com, the powerrank.com. Um, I, I want to make sure that I'm getting all that right. Am I missing anything? Is there anything you'd like to add for ways that people can follow your work and get in touch? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the most important, I, I mean, if, if you want to follow my stuff, uh, you know, most of my best stuff goes in my email newsletter. Uh, you can get that at the powerrank.com. Uh, you get a sample of my best football predictions during football season and also my analysis as well. And then a lot of my March Madness bracket advice and and cheat sheet to help you fill out your bracket. So uh, that's the best way, because if you're interested and want to ask a question, you can just hit reply to the the latest email and and ask it there. So uh, check out the email newsletter at thepowerrank.com. Got it. All right. Well, Ed, thank you so much for your time. This has been such an honor. Um, I hope that someday before too long, circumstances allow for us to meet in person, maybe over some good beer and basketball. And in the meantime, we'll really look forward to continuing to follow your work. So once again, thank you so much for joining, Ed. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. This was a lot of fun. Goodbye. Thanks again to Ed for joining the show. You can follow him on Twitter at The Power Rank. You can also check out his podcasts, The Football Analytics Show, as well as Covering the Spread. And be sure to also check out his work at thepowerrank.com. If you found any value in this conversation, I'd appreciate it if you could share it with a friend. And also a friendly reminder to please go ahead and follow or subscribe to Props and Hops wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, a quick rating and review would also be greatly appreciated. If you'd like to keep the conversation going, you can also follow me on Twitter at MLandis18 and on Instagram at Props and Hops. And if you'd be interested in a write-up on the most actionable betting information from my conversation with Ed, you'll be able to find that over at dimers.com, where you'll also be able to get valuable sports betting information every single day. Alright, that'll do it for this episode of Props and Hops. Enjoy the Sweet 16 and the Elite 8. Best of luck with your brackets and any other wagers. I'll talk to you next week, and until then, let's bet well, let's drink well, and let's be well. 